Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. Welcome to the uh, the last of our summer conversations. Yeah. Existential cheerful conversations. I mean, yes. This is the most existential. Maybe Brian's was pretty existential, but well, it's interesting, isn't it? We went all the way out uh, into the cosmos yeah. with Brian, and I think with this yeah. one, we're going all the way into our individual psyches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Oliver Berkman, who people may have come across. He, he for a long time, had a column in the magazine and The Guardian on a Saturday about changing your life, but it was empirical self-help rather than a bunch of... Um, we need an Edward at this juncture. What's what's a good Edward for kind of an airy-fairy bunch of old nonsense? Hocus-pocus? Hocus-pocus will do the trick. So, yeah, it's it's sort of anti-hocus-pocus. But his latest book is called 4,000 Weeks, and it's about how we use our time, how we value our time, how we should approach our time, because 4,000 Weeks is rounded. It's it's the amount of time we have on planet Earth. Which is a scary thought. I just got my calculator out just very quickly. Uh, I am at week 2,570. Oh, please don't say this. I don't want to know this, honestly. Just don't, just don't complete that sentence. All right, all right, I'll leave it hanging there. But it is, it is mildly terrifying. But, it, it? but the, what's good, what's good, just to sort of not make people press the kind of off button, is that it's an uplifting book. Yes, it is. I found it uplifting. I was quite anxious about reading it, but I found it uplifting. Yeah, because it's all about understanding your time for what it is, what writers, psychologists, neuroscientists, philosophers, philosophers over the years have, have figured out makes a fulfilling use of that time, how we don't overstretch ourselves, how we don't set ourselves unrealistic expectations, and how to use those weeks. Yeah, and going beyond the cliches of living in the moment. Yes, yeah. It's a smart book. Oliver's a smart man. And it's a, hopefully a smart conversation. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're so excited to talk to today's guest. Somebody bought me his book a few months ago. I was wildly enthusiastic. I then got you to read it. You are a convert. The book is 4,000 Weeks. I feel particularly vindicated because it's a book which, in part is about Jomo, the joy of missing out. And I think I, I am perhaps, you know, inherently that person. I feel like finally for once I've read a book about human behaviour and I've identified a positive attribute of my own behaviour. And the man I have to thank for that is Oliver Berkman. Hello. Hello. Hi. We were just talking about this before you came on the call. Now, 4,000 weeks 
is a human lifespan. And it is a terif- it's a terrifying number in a way that it wouldn't be if you were to put it into seconds. Right. And in a way that we, we all kind of accept if it's in years. So did you play around w- with that a little bit before you hit on expressing it in weeks? And and why this sort of cognitive distance? If you say 80 years, people are like, yeah, I live 80 years. And if you say 4,000 weeks, like you're giving people the sort of death sentence. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I did want to sort of grab people's attention. It is rounded. I always have to say that for the for the real mathematicians in the audience. Uh, the average, you get a few more than 4,000 if you live to the average lifespan in the UK, but it's only a few. I think the thing about expressing it in weeks, to me anyway, is a day is incredibly easy to waste. And, and it feels like it goes by in a flash all the time, right? Like, where did the day go? But you get so many of them that it doesn't feel like it matters. They feel a little bit more expendable and then years feel very unexpendable because you only get so few, but they're very long. And there's something about a week which like sort of fails on both counts because you don't get very many of them. And it seems very, very easy to wonder where the last week went all the time. Yeah. I hope that the message of the book is more of a relief than a cause for alarm. It's surprisingly uplifting, actually. (laughs) I am quite existentially dreading re-death. And so I was pretty trepidatious about reading it. And uh, it was surprisingly uplifting. Oh, I'm very glad to hear that. Uh, Yeah, the title, on the other hand, it was a bit of a risk because you don't want to panic people so much that they um, don't want to have anything to do with a book that has that title, right? I mean, uh, if it goes too far, you're like, well, I'm not going to touch that publication. And then there's a tiny number of people who respond by saying it seems like an enormous amount. And what's wrong with those people? (laughs) Um, that I guess it's just a personality thing. And of course, you know, anyone who's reading it who isn't a newborn baby does not have the 4,000 ahead of them anyway. Of course. Of course. Oh, don't make of it worse. <laughs> uh, now, look, can I ask a really unfair question, which is if you had to summarise the message of the book, what would it be? I can do that pretty quickly in a sort of abstract way. That would be something like so much of the stress we cause ourselves with regard to time comes from trying to avoid confronting our limitations and it's actually really empowering and liberating to confront our limitations including obviously the limitation of how much time we have so i think that is the message but it's a little bit abstract stated like that i know it's pertinent coming from you because i first encountered you and i've enjoyed your work over the years in the the magazine that came with the guardian on a saturday where you would kind of stress test self-help you would wade through all the nonsense of it and try and extract uh, useful techniques so the rest of us didn't have to <laughs> and yet you approach this from the point of view of, of of a reformed productivity geek in that process i guess you you were constantly trying to hone and manage your own life and you've put all that behind you that column was an opportunity to pursue that whole thing far enough that you know, if you if you get to try out a hundred different ways of organizing your your life and none of them bring the sort of total hoped for serenity and and like a feeling that you've that you've finally solved all your problems, that's kind of very informative. If you don't have time to test out a hundred because you're not writing a weekly column on things like this, you might still think that the next one was gonna do it. So I really I feel like I got, got to the end of that road and this book is what came next but you know i think i was i think i was fairly honest at least in the second half of writing that column that that part of what i was doing was just sort of therapy in public in a way trying to find things that that helped and didn't help for my own for my own hang-ups and for 
better or worse, this question of trying to feel like I was in control of my time has always been like a really big one existentially for me. How did you come to want to write this then? I feel like it's going to sound pretentious, so my apologies. But I also think like it was the only book I sort of wanted or needed to write. You sort of take your, you take the things that you're struggling with and that are bugging you yeah. and you try to write what you think is the advice that you try to understand what you've learned and what you need to hear. It took me a long time. And I think I kind of had to change my personality a bit in order to finish it, really. So I think it did have a proper therapeutic role in my case. That's that's no good to anyone else in and of itself. <laughs> Can I ask a sort of relatively personal question, which is, has has death always been something you've worried about or not particularly? Honestly, no. I don't think death per se is something that really sort of has haunted me. And I don't even really think this book is about death. It's just about this one big consequence of the fact that we die, which is that time is time is finite. You know, when I'm stressing about whether I can get through all the things I think I need to do by the end of the week, otherwise I'm a failure as a person, or stressing about how I'm supposed to be as good a parent as I think I need to be and as good a worker as I need to be when that seems to add up to more than 24 hours in a day and all these things like on some level they're about death because if we didn't die it wouldn't really be a it might not be a problem but um no I think honestly I'm not a morbid person I'm an anxious person but not a morbid person and let's talk about how time plays into the anxiety. I tend to be quite suspicious of anything which says the way we're behaving or patterns of human behaviour or thought are, are shaped by any facet of technology or the modern age. But actually, you, you make a really compelling case that there is a shift when we start dividing up time into mm. hours and seconds and, and, and minutes when clocks become widespread and the way that we think about time changes. Talk to us a bit about that. Well, yeah, I mean, this, these are ideas that go back to people like Lewis Mumford, who you may well be familiar with. It's this idea that there is some very big psychological change when you start thinking of time as an abstract thing that is separate from yourself, which we all do as second nature, but so naturally that it can be hard even to see that, that we're doing it. But I think most of us think of ourselves as in some sort of relationship with time. So you've got to try to fit more into the time that you have today, or you feel like you're always fighting time or time is nipping at your heels or something, right? There's always this kind of sense of like you and time, and it's your job to use this resource well. You feel bad if you waste it. And yeah, I sort of writing the book about how, from what we can glean anyway, a sort of pre-industrial early medieval English peasant, for example, just wouldn't have had that abstract notion in the first place. Time is just the medium in which your life unfolds. You milk the cows when it's time to milk the cows. You harvest the crops when it's time to harvest the crops. You're not sort of thinking in terms of schedules and lining your activities up against a, a yardstick and then judging yourself and feeling terrible if, if there aren't enough things in each little segment of time. And I think even though being an early medieval English peasant was overwhelmingly a terrible life, they would not have been troubled by time problems in that way because you need that that alienation from time in the first place to really feel that. Like the way we think about how language shapes human experience and even the written word shapes human experience. Carving time up like that and it being 
part of everyday life, perhaps as a, a similar effect. I think that's totally right. It's this kind of way that we develop concepts to make sense of the world, but then the concepts come to like run our interactions with the world. And it's really bad if your concept of kind of having time as a resource that you possess, if that, you know, it could be useful, but if that comes to sort of define your understanding of time, it's going to be a huge recipe for all sorts of stress because ultimately time doesn't work like that. You know, we never really have time and you can't really control the future and all these things that we're always trying to do with time, like at the end of the day, we can't do. So it's just a recipe for living more stressed than we need to be. Can I sort of pursue something in the book you call Cosmic Insignificance Therapy? (laughs) Sure. Cosmic Insignificance Therapy is an invitation to face the truth about your irrelevance in the grand scheme of things. Isn't one of the reasons why we shy away from our finitude, as you call it? Because if we face it too much, you end up thinking nothing really matters. And then how do you get out of bed in the morning? Yeah, no, totally. I think that is absolutely a reason that we... we shy away from it because when you when you really try to imagine what 4000 weeks is set against the backdrop of cosmic time it seems like nothing you do could ever matter those of us who are do have a tendency to anxiety often manifests as sort of massively overestimating the stakes of every decision we make. Oh, I'm definitely in that category. I've got the death <laughs> thing and the anxiety thing just to be sort of clear about this. There's definitely just some solace in that perspective shift of like who's going to care in 200 years about whether you choose decision A or decision B today. Is that really liberating, though? I'm not sure that is as liberating as it should be rationally. I think that's true, but I think that's where the other piece of this comes in. Like, this notion that if what you do has no huge significance in the terms of the cosmos, therefore nothing matters, like, that kind of smuggles in a really specific definition of mattering, whereby things are only meaningful if a thousand years from now you could see their influence. Ah, or things are only meaningful if yeah. millions of people know about it or something like that. And yet when you look at, when most people look at their lives and think about the things that they really easily find meaningful in, I don't know, family life or being in nature or doing the work that they do, a lot of the time it obviously doesn't meet those standards. So I think there's an argument for saying, why should we hold our daily lives to a standard that most of what we do as humans can't meet is is just a recipe for a, a life that feels less meaningful than it than it needs to feel why can't we say you know caring for somebody who's sick is meaningful making nutritious meals for your kids is meaningful uh getting to sort of experience the natural world in which you live is mean like all these things that are so mundane in a sense but i think people sort of intuitively feel that they're meaningful. And yet we're in this culture, obviously, that's committed to the idea that like it has to be fame or it has to be changing the world in a Silicon Valley terms that, that define meaningfulness. Not that those things are bad, but that they're just not necessary conditions for living meaningfully. So I think it's really, that's why I find it liberating. It makes every moment potentially a really important moment. You talk about this, this finitude that, that we all have and the acceptance of what we've got and what we what we won't do. An example you use, I think, is travel. That 
hearing that your life is 4,000 weeks can can make people want to see, you know, absorb and tick off everything they can possibly see. And I guess this goes along with experiences as well. And obviously, you know, m- money can dictate that. But even if you have all the money in the world, doing that doesn't lead to any happiness. It just leads to further discontent, which was surprising to me. I think it's really interesting that like we're all dealing with these infinite inputs into our lives, infinite emails, infinite felt obligations, infinite demands from the boss, whatever it is. And all that really happens if you sort of rise up the ladder or if you're born with more privilege than someone else, all that really happens is that the, the things that that infinite supply is full of are, are more fun and enjoyable. But it's still an infinite supply. So, so you sort of you know, it, it might, if you're lucky, you face an infinite supply of wonderful destinations to travel to and the resources to travel to them. And that's obviously a lot better than having to do an infinite amount of work just to pay the rent. But it's still this sort of fundamental situation that in the book I call existential overwhelm, right? Because you're still, you're still overwhelmed by the experiences that the world has to offer. And there is this great temptation to try to sort of feel like you've sucked the marrow from life by getting through your bucket list or whatever it is. And some people approach life in this way and some people sort of fantasize about retirement being in this way. But yeah, it, it does, you never get there because the world has an effectively infinite number of experiences to offer. And all that you achieve by trying to sort of fit more and more of them in is just a greater awareness of all the ones that that remain. So I, I think what interests me about that so much is that it's sort of this situation in in one sense is kind of neutral as to whether you are, you know, rich or poor, fortunate or unfortunate. Um, and you, you don't get off having to face your finitude if you want to live a meaningful life just because you're just because the things you get to do in your life are much more fun than some other people's. Tell you what this conversation is making me think about is sort of parenting, the three of us are parents, what you want to instill in your children is the purpose of life, I think. The reason I say this, that sounds a bit sort of trite, but I think the reason I say this is because I feel like in my upbringing, there was in a way a great blessing, which was to be taught a sense of responsibility about one's duty to the world without it being sort of Karl Marx for breakfast, but just a sort of sense, particularly because of my parents' background, I think, as refugees, there was a kind of implicit sense of responsibility to the world. And that was both a sort of blessing, but it was also quite a burden, actually. And in a way, sort of, I don't know, it's just like going to sound wrong, but not teaching your children to enjoy life or the purpose of life being enjoyment. And of course, enjoyment is probably not the right phrase either because enjoyment is too, sounds too, too sort of superficial. But I think it's something that is very, very implicit as a parent, not explicit. Yeah, I suppose that notion of having a responsibility to the world is one particular and, and fairly heavy version of this general idea that that it's your job to use your time well. Now, someone in a different background might grow up thinking that that burden was involved, you know, making as much money as they possibly could or... Partying in Ibiza. Right. I mean, I would quite like it if I'd been, that would have been the... I'd had a bit more partying in Ibiza in my sort of... Right. No, absolutely. I know what you mean. But all of those in their own ways can be sort of burdensome, burdensome oh, yeah. commands to use... 
yeah. time really well. And in the end, that's got to sort of cash out in in life itself being feeling enjoyable in the moment. And I mean, that's that's the end point of anyone who sort of preaches your responsibility to the world. It's like, why, why do you fight for a better world? So that people can, at some point in the process, some people can enjoy being alive in a way that they might otherwise not do. But it's really hard, yeah, because as a parent, I keep realising to my dismay that you actually have to be the person that you want them to be influenced by rather than just, uh, rather than just tell them how you want them to be. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really good point. But isn't that it, though? Isn't it instead of saying, look, life is a bucket, here's what is the best thing to put in the bucket, it's it's saying life's a bucket and, and the bucket is finitude and then giving them space to feel whatever they're going to feel mm-hmm. and you're there to support them through them and to keep them safe. Yeah. And then, as you just said then, Oliver, like modelling it. Just, just being it, and th- but that's for them to find out. That's not for you to push onto them. Maybe that's the behaviour my parents modelled, which was this great sense of responsibility. They didn't tell me you've got massive responsibility to the world and let me wag my finger at you. Actually, that's a good point. I mean, that's a really good point. I think that's right. I love that quote from Jung that the the greatest burden a child must bear is the unlived life of the parent, which we have this very cliched understanding of, right? You know, sort of like <laughs> yeah, yeah. stage parents who wish they'd been movie stars themselves who who hassle their kids or yeah. whatever. But I think that it, one of the lessons of that is that you don't want to turn this thought about how to be a good parent into a new form of burden, your responsibility to spend your life using your time as well as you can for the purposes of raising children. You actually need to sort of think about your own enjoyment of life. And that's how you will end up modeling the capacity to enjoy life it will be by doing it. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Talk to us a little bit about the stuff you get into the book about finitude and how it it plays into the ideas of commitment, for example, to relationships and of what settling entails. Jeff obviously is talking about the fact that he settled for me on the podcast. Yes, I really wanted Ed Balls, but he uh... and he's now come to he's now come to embrace it, haven't you, Jeff? Yes, yeah, then that's it's taken five years, but I'm not going to comment on any of that. This topic always really makes me. Uh realize how much of this is kind of self-therapy. But I think that one of the things I'm talking about in the book is how we try, and as is obvious from our discussion so far, is um, about how we sort of um, try to feel in control of our time, not just try to pack more into it, but feel like we're like the masters of our own lives. There's a there's a cock crowing in the background here, just as a confusing reminder of time. So 
let me know if that's a problem. You hear that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, we've got a bit good. of texture. That's, that's good, good special effects, good cockroach special effects, <laughs> I'd say. Don't you think, Jeff? Oh, We're definitely going to keep that in. Um, and, and so, like, keeping your options open, which in relationships is sort of commitment phobia, but in other areas of life can be manifest in other ways. Keeping your options open is, is something that we do. I've certainly done in my early adulthood in all areas of life in order to feel like you, you're still in control, right? Because you haven't, you haven't totally committed yourself to any path. So that must mean that you, you retain the upper hand over your, over what you're going to do, be doing with your, with your life. In the classic example of settling or not settling, right? In dating, you're settling in a different way because you're settling to not have in that 10 years of your life um, the benefits of a committed relationship. And you know, and also procrastination can be a form of this too, right? If you're the kind of person who knows that one day you're going to make some amazing contribution to the world, but you don't want to deal with the imperfections of actually making it, then you sort of end up just never starting because you get to sort of cherish this fantasy of how great it's going to be when you when you begin, which is a reason to, to not begin. And the point I make in the book is that actually all of these things are just forms of emotional avoidance to try to feel like you're not limited in the way that actually we all are, that there's never going to come this time when you feel absolutely prepared for making a, a sort of binding commitment in a relationship or in anything else. And there's even research to show this, that, that when people make choices that they can't back out of, which obviously isn't literally true about marriage, but it's but it's a lot harder to back out of a marriage once you have committed to a marriage than if you don't. That when people make choices that they can't back out of, they're reliably happier because they're not haunted by this question of like, should I be taking this path or this path? They're just on a path and they do everything that they can to make it fruitful and fulfilling. I guess the other way around that you can put it is that um, it causes you to actually be engaged in reality. So if there are satisfactions to be had from committing to a career path or committing to a relationship. You're not going to get them if you're still standing on the, the threshold. And all of that is just another way of saying, I think you're better off acknowledging the truth about finitude than, than trying to find ways to, to not feel it. Engaging with reality is always ultimately more satisfying than trying to pretend. Then there's this other idea people can think, oh, well, it's like this now, but I'll, I'll get to this point when I'll do this and life will be like this. And that's the bit where I get to enjoy it. There are all sorts of reasons, I think, why we fall into this mindset of thinking that it's going to be later when we have our ducks in a row and our life in order and got the right qualifications, et cetera, et cetera. And then life can begin properly. And it seems to come just intrinsically from focusing on how you're using time. So in a way, even though this book is about how to use time, I'm sort of saying if you really over-focus on how well you're using time, you sort of inevitably end up living focused on the future because it's an instrumental attitude to take to life. You're by definition saying like, you know, the value of this moment now is in terms of where it's going to get me later on. And as many people have observed through history, if you invest in that outlook completely, you're always in pursuit of something there's this amazing quote from Keynes that I quote in the book about how the purposive man doesn't love his cat, but only his cat's kittens, nor in truth the kittens, but only the kitten's kittens, and so on forward forever to the end of catdom. Which sort of, it's this notion that like, if you're really too focused on trying to extract value from your time, you miss your life because you never just come to rest in a moment and say, like, 
this moment now is is part of the the value of why I'm here rather than what it's all leading up to. But that's not the same as this commonplace idea of of living in the moment because sort of what how you choose to think of the moment and you this is, ties into what you were just saying isn't necessarily about the now. There's a lot of messages we get that we should try to be in the moment more than we than we are and I sort of get annoyed with that in the book because it seems pretty obvious to me anyway that whenever you try to be in the moment it just leads to you not being in the moment you're, you're taking yourself out of the moment constantly questioning yourself it's like when you have a baby people say everyone tells you you should savor the first few months with your newborn baby that's the advice everyone gives when you have a newborn baby but it's terrible advice to give to someone like me because then you're just constantly cross-questioning yourself about whether you're savoring it enough um and as a result, you're savouring it less than if you weren't asking that question. Also, to be slightly more sort of philosophical about it, I guess, we, we always are only in the moment anyway, right? So this, this can't be altered. One thing that I take from that is that it just means you never actually have to deal with anything other than this moment. And, you know, you can have all sorts of plans and strategies and goal setting systems and the rest of it, but they only ultimately count in terms of how they help you navigate the next moment. And for people who are prone to worry, the realization that you only have to worry about the next moment at each point is actually, I think, is amazing news. It's helped me a lot. For example, making lists of things you've got to do and thinking you might be able to get to the end of the list of the things you're going to do, where you're never going to get to the end of the list you're going to do because there are going to be more things added to the list. Right. The, the notion that there's all that there will always be too much to do, like I find it very easy to forget. And, and, there are, and that's why I sort of try to use practices in my day-to-day life that embody that wisdom instead of just like yelling it at myself but just realizing that there will always be too much to do was incredibly powerful moment for me that really did last in its in its influence because it's sort of like you've finally done a mathematical equation and seen the answer and when you've seen the answer it's so much less likely that you're going to sort of just fall totally back into the previous state of thinking do we need individuals who don't read this book and, and, and continue in the kind of dysfunction that we could all get into in order for leaps forward, either in society or, or, or culture or thought or invention technology, whatever, whatever it is? is? Is this concept of finitude and this way of living your life compatible with, with that kind of forward momentum? I've been asked this once or twice in a slightly different way. And by people who sort of who are committed to this idea that you have to sort of believe in the impossible in order to do important things in the world. On the one hand, I think there will always um, sadly be some people who haven't read this book, so it's so we're, so we're going to be okay in that respect. But I want to say no. I want to I want to make a very clear distinction. I think between two sort of different meanings of impossible, and and say that this book is about. The really so I don't know what the right word would be logically impossible or literally impossible or something, but like trying to do more tasks in a day than it is possible for anyone a human to do in a day that's literally impossible. Like you know, designing the iPhone to give the cliched example of all cliched examples was something that would have seemed impossible a decade or two before it happened, but but proved not to be impossible. So I don't think impossible is the right word for something like that, or for breakthroughs in science, breakthroughs in medicine, breakthroughs in society, anything like that. So 
No, I think it's precisely by sort of reconciling ourselves to the impossibility of the truly impossible that that you kind of free up the energy and time for people to make the biggest difference that they can, which for some small minority of people is going to be those kind of civilizational level things. Because if you pick someone, I mean, you know, I don't know who the right example to pick, but if you pick someone who we all agree is someone who's sort of changed the world in a fantastically positive way, you will not find that they're also trying to answer every single email that they receive or excel in every single domain of life. Quite the opposite. There'll be someone who has very, with very clear eyes, sees that if they're going to do the thing that they feel put on the planet to do, it's going to involve confronting their limitations. I need a specific exemplar. Tell people why uh, Rod Stewart. Yeah, we could pick him. Yeah, is uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's let's go with Rod Stewart, who features in the book. I just included him because I was trying to make the argument for hobbies, which is a sort of a surprisingly awkward argument to make in the, the modern world, because I'm trying to make this argument at that point about how, again, about instrumentalizing time, about always feeling like you've got to put time to productive use. And in a way, a true hobby doesn't do that, right? A true hobby is something that you do for its own sake. If you do it to make money or to get ahead in your career, we now call it a side hustle instead of a hobby. And it's much more hip than a hobby. But Rod Stewart um, has several times given interviews to railway modeling magazines, revealing that he has this massive, massive, exp- extensive um, uh, model railway set up, so big that when he was regularly touring, he would book an extra hotel room so that he could take it along and work on it in his spare time. And I just think what's so striking about that example is it's so sort of antithetical to his public brand that it's just very clear that he must just genuinely love doing it for its own sake. And there's something kind of mm. uh, touching about about that. And, and you're right that he's not interested in building model railways particularly or setting them up. Somebody comes and does that for him. Right, right. Yes. He's interested in the activity yeah. of playing, playing with the model railway. Yeah, no, I mean, he uses his wealth to get the electrical wirings done by professionals and things like this. So he's not even trying to develop a skill of being uh, good at that. It's just that sense that you... Sometimes when somebody does, you find that somebody does something like that, but that so doesn't contribute to any of their sort of public goals. I am conscious that part of my danger is that you translate an achievement-oriented mindset into your leisure activity. Like I do this on holiday, I sort of go into manic exercise mode because it's sort of an achievement-oriented version of work, you know, yeah, swim an hour. You know what I mean. It sort of becomes a sort of no, no, totally. And I, I do, I touch on that because I think it's totally a, it's totally a thing. That sort of instrumentalization of, of leisure time, either for the purposes of being better at your work or just for the purposes of like achieving living longer. That too, um, and so that I do make the argument at one point there that it, that about the benefits of doing at least one thing in your life that you're like actively and sort of self avowedly bad at. Because it because they are freer of that kind of thing, and I talk about playing the piano myself and sort of uh, hammering out rock Elton John piano, isn't rock it? tunes, yeah, very badly. And I really do find that enjoyable. And I have never really been motivated to go further than the very low level of merit that I achieved when I was a, a kid in that area. And it is freeing in that respect because you just know that it's never going to be an issue whether people are willing to pay you money for this skill or um, whether it's going to sort of entertain people in a kind of 
in terms of critical acclaim. And then when I think about writing, which obviously I do professionally, like it's deeply absorbing and meaningful to me and I always want to do it for the rest of my life if I can, but it's quite fraught because I kind of want it to be good and I want to be able to make a living from it and I want people to respond well. Is there a particular way in which you're living your life differently since writing the book compared to pre the book, do you think? I think I am a lot less on that treadmill of trying to constantly chasing this moment when I'm going to be in control of everything and have all my ducks in a row and sort of feel qualified enough to do everything in life without mm, interesting. feeling fear about it or something. Interesting. The reason I was wanted to write this book is because I was in a particularly I was a particularly extreme case. If you start as a, someone who's very fixated on this sort of trying to find the perfect productivity systems and constantly sort of living in the future, then you can make big improvements and only end up fairly zen at the end of that. So the fact that I think I've got a lot better doesn't necessarily put me at some fantastic place at the end of that, at the end of that process. And my wife certainly has frequent occasion to jokingly recommend that I read my own book. That certainly happens. Well, look, you've given us so much to talk about. I feel like we could go on for hours and hours. And so that should be hopefully a very big recommendation for people to get the book. If, if you want to if you want a bill ad for the therapy, by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, 4,000 Weeks, Time and How to Use It by Oliver Berkman. Oliver, it's a, it's a great book. We really appreciate you joining us. Oh, thank you so much for asking me. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer uh, produces all the content, books all the guests, and she's supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. Our idents were made by James Deacon, and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 